Hello, I'm Darlene Nipper, CEO of Rockwood Leadership Institute, and your host for today's episode of the Leading from the Inside Out podcast. My guest today is Salome Luma, Executive Director of Thousand Currents and, of course, a Rockwood alum. Salome, welcome. Thank you. It's such an honor to be here. Thank you for having me. So, uh, we're going to get into more about your work in a minute, but what's your, tell me a little bit about your story, like how you got from where you started in life to where you are now. I, I was born in Ethiopia in East Africa, and I lived there until I was about 11. Um, and when I was 11, I came to the United States and we moved to Marietta, Georgia. And in Marietta, to Georgia, um, I encountered a community that was very different from what I grew up in. The kinds of questions that I faced from uh, from my peers shocked me because I didn't expect it. And, and of course, now that I know that was um, a shared experience by most African immigrants, right? But I didn't know that as an 11 year old. So when right. kids would say to me, oh, what did you eat? Or were you starving during that famine? Oh. Um, or, you know, where, where did you live? Did you have a home? I didn't understand. Um, because even though I don't come from a family that was wealthy or even middle class, but, um, I came from a place that was abundant in love and I never felt like I lacked anything. So my sense of identity was not rooted in lack or deficit. It was actually rooted in, in pride. And I actually thought I would come to America and tell people about how awesome Ethiopia is, you know, and how I can't wait to go back. So, so I think those, the fact that I came to a place where um, in some ways my story was already told for me before I even had a chance to articulate it myself mm-hmm. helped inform my educational pursuits as well as my career pursuits around really focusing on shifting narratives about Africa in general, um, about um, social justice um, and about Africans and and uh, and the agency and self determination of Africans that became the driving force behind kind of that pursuit, uh, which Amazing. led me here. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. There's so much in what you're saying that that I have to take my first detour of the of the of the interview now and just say you know of this conversation and say what would you say about the history of Ethiopia? I I know just a little bit that actually um, might be useful for people to understand in terms of your knowledge and understanding about uh, social justice and equity and colonization and those kind of issues. What what would be important for people to know? Right, right. That's a great question. Um, You know, it's complicated. It's a great question and a really complicated question. And depending on what Ethiopian you have sitting in this chair, they would answer it different. And I think that's the one thing people need to know. Um, The story that people know about Africa in the States when I came was that there was a big, uh, um, about Ethiopia in particular, was that there was a famine, you know? And it's this idea that we helped you, we saved you. Um, we sang a song for you and raised a lot of money, right? Mm -hmm. Um, That's the story people know, that you're poor, you're hungry, you're despondent. Um, that wasn't my experience. There were certainly inequities in Ethiopia. There were certainly challenges. There was a famine, um, and a famine that was worsened by political choices and decisions, not because we didn't have the resources. But um, depending on where you lived, you experienced it differently. And I grew up in Addis Ababa. I was a kid, so I don't even remember it. I didn't even know there was a famine in the country, right? Whereas for Americans, Ethiopia was hungry. 
as a whole. So that's one part of it. The other side of Ethiopia that I think people know is that it's the only country that defeated and won against European colonization and imperialism because Mm -hmm. um, Italy attempted to colonize Ethiopia. And there's this idea that the Ethiopians in the Battle of Adwa defeated Italy, right? Mm -hmm. And remained an uncolonized uh, country. And to, to a large extent, that is true. The current state formation of Ethiopia was not colonized by Europeans uh, or Italy in that way. Um, but we have a complicated history in which, um, you know, in terms of how the state of Ethiopia itself was formed, that Ethiopia, what we call present Ethiopia, is comprised of different ethnic groups, um, some of which joined the union or the state of Ethiopia by force and not consent, and that there are issues and tensions around that. Mm-hmm. Um, there are political differences. So it's my when I came to America, I realized the narrative of Ethiopia was either you're hungry or you're the black star, like you're the nation that defeated mm-hmm. the Europeans. Um, there's a bit of truth in both. And there's a huge middle that's actually really complicated, that there are some Ethiopians within Ethiopia that felt like they were colonized within the state of Ethiopia under Ethiopian leadership, um, including the ethnic group that I come from. Uh, so I think the one thing that I want people to know is that to understand the history of um, a nation like Ethiopia, let alone a continent like Africa, which is often described as a country, it's nuanced and complicated. And you have to dig deeper than what you're, what the news media is feeding you. You see, your story, is it, it crosses continents. It, it crosses, it's both spread, it's pan-Africanist. And, and then beyond that, it's like you're, you came to the States, you just, before we got on, you just said you, you know, you're an East Coast person in the United States. Who are your people? My people are everywhere. <laughs> everyone. <laughs> everywhere and everyone. You know, um, I am an Oromo and African from Ethiopia, right? And those are my people. Oromos are my people. Africans are my people. Ethiopians are my people. Um, but um, beyond that, my people are people that um, that reject the status quo, people that um, really, really understand the, the importance and necessity of sovereignty and autonomy and self-determination and people that work to preserve and protect that and people that um, for whom justice and equities are ways of life and not just ideas to be debated or floated around. Um, so my people are people who are working not just to resist current systems of extraction and exploitation that we see in the world, but people that are giving us glimpses into the new futures that we want to live into with the creators, with the innovators, with the experimenters. I, those are my people too. Um, and to be honest, it's, you know, I often think about my people, where I come from, and also who are my people, what is home to me in that respect, mm-hmm. and who is home in it. It is my people and home to me are, you know, um, where my loved ones are. So in many ways, um, home to me right now is Atlanta, Georgia, because I still have family there. It's Ethiopia, of course, and Africa in general, because I still have folks there. Um, It's California. It's wherever I have loved ones. Mm, Beautiful, beautiful. I know that you founded or co-founded Africans in the Diaspora. Tell us about that work and it, uh, and what was important to you and just whatever you want to talk about about that work yeah. and what it is. Make sure you tell us what it is so that folks can understand it. From Absolutely. Absolutely. Africans in the diaspora is um, 
an organization that I co-founded um, that worked to harness and mobilize African diaspora philanthropy to connect the resources, financial and intellectual of Africans in the diaspora with the work of organizations in Africa that were working to build new and transformative futures across the continent. Um, that's what Africans in the diaspora was. Um, how I got to Africans in the diaspora, um, if I can tell it kind of briefly is the summer between my first year and second year of graduate school, I ended up going to Liberia and West Africa. And there I found myself entering a country that I had never been to um, that was coming out of a long conflict um, where refugees were repatri being repatriated back to their homes or returning home. Mm -hmm. And that's who I was working with. And I saw how in many ways they had some really clear ideas and brilliant ideas about how they wanted to rebuild them, their lives and rebuild their communities. Mm -hmm. Once they returned, um, but then our organization's budgets were dictated by donors. Uh -huh. So we couldn't necessarily fund their ideas. Mm -hmm. So I left that a little a bit disenchanted, but also with a clear awareness of I was going to stay in this field of social justice um, from an international perspective. I needed to tap into what I thought was a personal identity as a bridge. I ended up in philanthropy in that way. And after a year or two in philanthropy, then I saw another problem. <laughs> when it comes to Africa, philanthropy still had a paternalistic um, lens and view. We were still doing things for Africa. And our idea of where resources come from are the global north, are mm -hmm. Americans, and then we send it to Africa. We don't think of Africans having resources, Africans being um, solutions and agents of change. We see Africans as recipients and needs mm. beneficiaries. Mm -hmm. uh, meanwhile, Africans in the diaspora were spending 40, 50, eventually $60 billion a year to our families in the form of remittances, which is um, bigger than all bilateral and multilateral aid to Africa and larger than um, uh, uh, foundation giving to Africa. Wow. So I thought, well, clearly there's a gap because if we have Africans with resources here, what would it look like to actually tap into African resources and connect them directly in a way that is not um, vertical, top down, but that's horizontal because Africans in the diaspora also seek um, connections and belonging to and with the continent. And how can we facilitate those relationships where resources that are financial are definitely transferred, but also eventually relationships are built that are kind of that, that cross the boundaries of geography and borders for Africans around the world. So that's kind of what gave birth to Africans in the diaspora because I was frankly tired of the way development and philanthropy continued to approach the continent. Um, and I felt like it was, and I still believe it's imperative that Africans build institutions of their own um, to um, to help not only open up space at the table <laughs> uh, where these decisions are being made, but to also model what alternative solutions look like and how we can do this work differently. Wow. Wow. And and what were, wow. First of all, that's remarkable. And, for, and the data that you just uh, spoke of is staggering. But what were some of the challenges in doing that? How was this incredible idea received? I heard a lot of, wow, this is such a great idea. We would love to support it um, because initially the case I was making was eventually this is an organization that will be self-funded by diaspora communities. To get it off the ground, we will need support from allies and friends of Africa. Makes sense. Yeah. So 
So there's a lot of, yes, yes, we want to support it, but nobody really came through because I don't think people are really bought into the idea and really understood uh, the political and practical implications of the work that we wanted to do. Uh, and then there were others who loved the idea and copied it, but didn't support us. So that was a wow. challenge. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we expect from Africans. My gosh, the response was incredible from diaspora. It was incredibly positive. Um, we set out to do our work in the U.S. Um, initially because we thought start small and just organize U.S. diaspora and then we'll move globally. Sure. Um, we were getting responses from all over, from all parts of Europe, even parts of Africa, with people saying, this is what we needed. This is the type of organization that I've been waiting for. And we spoke to, I think we spoke to people's frustrations with how Africa is, um, is perceived and also presented by development and philanthropy organizations. And also spoke to their aspirations around what it would look like to have self-determined Africans only their own change, right? So we got so many beautiful letters that I think for me sustained me throughout the initial year of challenges that come with something like this. Um, and of course, those were mostly personal challenges around to start Africans in the diaspora. I knew I couldn't stay at my job. Um, which was highly demanding, and I left it. And when you leave your job, then you're not just worried about um, about the future and success of that which you're trying to give birth to, but also your own well-being and livelihood. And and asking yourself, you know, I walked away from a significant promotion um, and significant opportunity in the sector, and was it worth it, or so on? I never questioned the values and principles behind that choice, but there is the realities yeah. <laughs> of a choice like that, right? So that part of it was. Hard. And then it also, it was really instructive for me in realizing um, engaging diaspora communities is very different from engaging other, uh, other funders or donors. Engaging diaspora to translate individual giving into institutional giving um, requires a different strategy that's really centers relationships and not transactions, right? Um, and that really focuses on connections. Um, and, and not just the work. Um, and, and, and it takes time. It takes a long time. You know, it's Africans um, give abundant, generously and abundantly. So to make a case for something like this, the strategy and orientation needs to be different. And that takes me to your next journey, because now, after all of this fantastic work as a leader, you're leading Thousand Currents. And uh, there are two aspects of it that I'm deeply curious about. Mm. One is your transition, obviously, like from what you were doing before and your time at Thousand Currents before you became the executive director into the role that you're in now. And two is just like, what do we need to know about what's happening in the world of the work that you're doing mm. and uh, so that we can be better partners with you as well? Yeah, yeah. Thousand Currents is an organization that has been around for 34 years now. Um, wow. We be called IDEX. We changed our name to Thousand Currents uh, about two years ago. And from the very beginning, we were committed to supporting communities at the front lines of change. We, I think maybe it was in the second year of African Sudas where um, the, the previous ED of Thousand Currents, Vinny reached out to me to ask me how things were going. And we started having conversations. And I realized the extent to which Thousand Currents was so values aligned with Africans in the diaspora. The deep-rooted commitment to transforming um, 
not just the way the sector of philanthropy works as a whole, but also really transforming what building organizations that are healthy and resilient mm-hmm. looks like. That was inspiring to me. So when she said there was a possibility for partnership in that that IDEX at that time mm-hmm. <laughs> was, um, could fiscally sponsor and incubate Africans in the diaspora, I was thrilled. And that's how we started our transition relationship. Nice. Africans in the diaspora was incubated at IDEX then. Um, and we worked in incubation for two years, knowing that if the partnership worked, we would make Africans in the diaspora a program with an IDEX. And if we felt like it needs to go in two different directions, we would do that. Um, and it worked. It worked really well. And now Thousand Currents has a diaspora partnerships program, um, the first of which is Africans in the diaspora housed under the Africa program and Thousand Currents. Today, Thousand Currents not only supports grassroots organizations and movements that are working on issues like food sovereignty, alternative economies, and climate justice, but we also have a robust program focused on transforming philanthropy, focused on uh, making it more just and equitable through initiatives like the Thousand Currents Academy, which is a training for, um, for people involved in philanthropy, um, or through experiments like the Buen Vivir Fund, which is a different form of in- impact investment, or the Klima Fund, which is a collaborative fund for climate justice. Mm-hmm. Um, so Thousand Currents has um, multiple programs um, running right across its veins right now, its organizational veins, uh, through its veins. But, um, but I would say the core and heart of our work is the support to grassroots groups and social movements, um, mostly primarily in Africa, Asia, and Latin America right now. I heard you talk about transformative leadership. Uh, I want to ask you what has mostly shaped the way that you lead, because it sounds like this shared collaborative leadership style works for you, and yes. that you are, you're really, the work that you're doing is really about transformative leadership. Yeah. So, what has what's shaped that for you the most the way you are now around these ideas? I my leadership has been informed by the way that women in my family show up and lead mm-hmm. um, in in the personal space that I actually often draw upon in this professional spaces that I hold, uh, and it's been shaped by poor um, leadership experiences or bad leadership experiences of you know, that reminded me or that taught me what I don't want to do as well as really great leadership models and leaders that inspired me to be better. Um, but if I had to kind of give you one example right now, I would I would give you my very first example when I went back to Ethiopia to work when I was young and 22 and um, thought I can do anything and everything. Um, <laughs> and I ended up, I, you know, I ended up getting a, a job at a big international organization. Um, and my boss was, um, her role was that of national economist um, for that organization. And um, she, I was really surprised by how much responsibility she handed to me immediately. Wow. Um, For an organization um, for whom status is really big and um, an organization that has bureaucratic lines around who talks to who and who has access to who, she literally, literally tore down all those barriers for me. So she had me interacting with the secretary in general, you know, back in New York. She had me interacting with ambassadors in the country. Um, She opened doors that I really didn't deserve at that time. 
but but what that taught me was that she she was really invested in um or committed to investing in young emerging women leaders and that was that was a an intentional practice of hers and also this idea of leadership as um as a starting point for leadership being trusted uh-huh. right she trusted me immediately um and and, and and gave me space to make mistakes and to learn from them and I think, um, and also she never told me what to do. She asked me questions. She had me write the country's development cooperation report or begin the process for that, which was a big responsibility for someone my age at that time. Uh, she gave me guidance. She held the container for me. She asked questions about the direction and created space for me to ask her questions, but she didn't really dictate or tell me what to do. And I think those are leadership attributes that I hold dear to this day. I think my leadership practice is inquiry-based. I ask a lot of questions to help people get to the answers that they're seeking. And where I need to help give those answers, I'm willing to use my starting point is inquiry. And also, um, also I, I strongly believe that leadership exists at odd, at odd levels and layers of an organization. Yes. The leader of an organization is not just AED, right? We know that. Right. Leadership right. is at every level. Everybody exercises leadership. And I think she was my first um, practical model of how you support leadership at all levals. Mm. What, is, what is the purpose? What is your purpose these days? It's like, what are you sitting with as a... Um, I mean, we understand a lot about the, the, how your vision, some of your visions have come to fruition and a lot about your work. But how would you how would you describe your purpose in this moment? In this moment, <laughs> my immediate answer is I think my purpose is holding fiercely and lovingly to to the visions of a just, equitable world that are different from the one that we have and to maintaining a space for unburdened imagination to flourish. I think we have so um, so many challenges that are being thrown our way that, that are aiming to help us believe that there isn't another way, that another world is not possible, that the only world we have is this, that the only political structures that we can build are the ones that we have, the only economic structures we can build is the one that we have. And I think it's my purpose now is to really hold tightly to that vision and that imagination that other possibilities are viable, that they're right here. And it's our job to nurture, cultivate them and to resist and reject um, the dogma of the current system and structure. Oh, so incredibly beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that. So just a couple of more questions for you. So if you were going to say something to the next generations, you know, we talked just briefly about our uh, you know, younger people, but you're going to say something to the next generation um, or, or leave something for future generations. Um, if, if you could meet with them, say they were here right now. Imagine that these future generations are actually listening to us right now. What, what, what message do you have for, for those folks? Such a good question. Um, I think my message is, first of all, thank you. Thank you for carrying the work. Um, thank you for um, building these, these new futures where people, land, um, and climate are, and planet are thriving. I'm sorry we burdened you 
with a lot of the hard work um, that you have, everything that you need to do what you need to do, and that your ancestors um, in the past is accompanying you on this journey that you're on. Mm, thank you. Powerful. And uh, finally, if you know, if we had a movement mixtape. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm going to go for it because this is the Rockwood way. What song is on your movement mixtape right now that you can share? Right with now. Yeah. What's the uh, song on that mixtape? Alisa Continua, Miriam McKeba. <gasps> oh, one of my favorites. Yes. Oh, uh, Salome. Yeah. What a joy it is to spend, you know, this kind of time with you. Really. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you so much, folks. This is Darlene Nipper with Rockwood Leadership Institute. We've been talking to Salome Lima, Executive Director of Thousand Currents, an amazing journey and a wonderful leader in our midst. Thank you so much, Salome, for talking to us. Thank you. Thank you for this inspiring conversation for me. Uh, thank you for having me.